I like to start with a little story, uh, especially as many people, uh, quite a few people, this is a first retreat. And so for some, it might feel, hmm, yeah, hmm, I like this. And for some, it might be like, this is this Herculean task, this mountain to climb. So the story is about a very good friend, Larry Rosenberg, who is American. He's written a wonderful book, Breath by Breath. Very much recommend. And so first he was trained, actually, in the Korean Zen tradition. And so this was the early days, long ago, early days of Buddhism. And so finally he had the opportunity to go to Korea for a three-month retreat, and he was going as a representative of, you know, American, Koreans, and Buddhism. So he really had to be, like, good. He got lots of instruction from his master how to behave and to be a good representative. So off he go, the Olympic representative, to the three-month retreat. And he thought, you know, I have to do this. I mean, you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you go to bed at o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, you sit 50 minutes, 5-0, and then you walk 10 minutes, you do that many hours in the day. And he could just about do it. Like he felt, poor. all right, I can do it, I can do this, I can do this, you know. And then it was winter. And then in winter, there is this tradition where you do a week, of meditation without sleep. So you sit all day and you sit all night with a little 10 minutes walking meditation. When he heard that, oh, I mean, up to now I can be the Olympic representative, but I mean, you know, this, I cannot do. He could not imagine, how can I do this? So he goes to the master, he goes to the master, he says, master, master, I don't know, how can I do this? And the master said, oh, try one breath at a time. Don't anticipate, just one breath at a time. Just stay with one breath at a time and see what happened. And actually, that's what he did. And he was able to do the famous <laughs> non-sleep week. And so I think this is, in a way, I'll talk more about this next time, but this tendency we have to anticipate. But when we anticipate is in abstraction, because you are not, when you anticipate, when you forecast something, it's in abstraction. It's not in the reality here. And so when you are here, well, Maybe we can be one breath at a time. One, two, three. And so I think to kind of, in a way, look at this. Because the thing with a retreat is that in Korea, I mean, you have three months. So the way it used to be that the first two weeks were rather difficult. Because, you know, the body, the mind, you're 10 hours a day, you know. And after two weeks, it was like, wow. For two months, I want to do this my whole life. This is the best thing. I love it. And then the last two weeks, it was, hmm, let's get out. 
you know. And the master used, used to say, if you're not awakened, you cannot go out. And then, you know, when he was not looking, everybody would go. And I think on a retreat, it's a little a shorter one. It's a little the same, but shorter. The first day is a little difficult, then generally it gets a little better. And then generally one is ready to go. So for you to see what the reason of this retreat will be for you. What I wanted to look at tonight a little more precisely was about mindfulness. What we do mean by this term and how I think when we use it, when we try to apply it, we have to kind of look at the different aspects. So first, what I want to look, use two terms. You could use mindfulness, you could use awareness. But when we are mindful, or when we pay attention, it's interesting to look, am I paying attention in a specific way or am I paying attention in the general way? And there is a kind of a strange effect that often if we pay attention in a specific way, there can be an intensifying effect. You might have noticed, for example, that if you're aware of your breath, I mean, you, unless you are asthmatic or unless you... <gasps> You know, you go fast and then suddenly you're really aware of your breath. Generally, we don't think about our breath because it does its thing. And then we tell you, oh, pay attention to your breath. And it's like nearly immediately you do it. And then you spend, we often spend our time trying not to do the breath because we keep hearing flow with the breath, rest with the breath, if you okay. And there is this strange effect that when we pay attention to something, it looks a little more intensified, a little sharper. So kind of to be aware of that, that I think there are different ways to be mindful, to pay attention, to be aware, to focus in a way. I'll talk more about this tomorrow morning, that it can be specific, so in quite a specific area, but that's not the only a modulation of mindfulness. You can also be aware in a general way. And you will have very many different techniques. And some technique will be more specific, and then other technique will be more really wide open. And then some technique will be in the middle. So to see that there are different ways to be mindful. And I think it's one way to check with that, what I call the intensifying effect is interesting. Like, for example, let's say you have a pain in the knee. You have some strong sensation in the knee. And sometimes you go there, and it's like it intensifies it. And then generally, if it has that effect, I would say, leave it aside. Focus on your hands. Focus on the contact. Or you can go inside the pain. And it's like you are experiencing it in a very different way. I mean, once I had, uh, I had a bad sciatica. And then I had to sit to, to do the bell. And so, you know, I went to sit. And I realized if I sit there and I have this shooting pain 
burning pain in my knee and I'm kind of kind of counting the second until the 30 minutes is up. This is going to be a little kind of uh, difficult because it'll just amplify. And so I went inside the experience and just to be closer to the what is a sensation. And I was with the burning, the shifting, the and actually the time went quite fast. And then I went to take a painkiller. Doesn't mean you have to stay with it all the time. But personally, that's what I can notice. That sometimes you pay attention, and then it seems to magnify, to amplify. And then sometimes you pay attention, it's kind of, it kind of dissolves in terms of the relationship we have with it. And so because in that way we can play. Do I put a more specific focus, what happened? Or is it better if I am a more general focus? And that's why I talk about foreground and background. You can put the breath in the foreground within different you know, things in the background. And so we kind of, kind of play a little bit with, am I observing what is in the foreground? Am I with what is in the background? Do I bring something forward, bring something backward? And then play with these two elements and also the element of this openness. And then when it, it intensifies a bit. So kind of playing with it, exploring. Then you have another thing, which is being mindful. And why it was translated, the term is sati, S-A-T-I. And actually the term is more memory. So literally it means to remember. So maybe to remember our intention to be aware. Sati can also mean presence of mind. But then in the 18th century, it was translated as mindful because mindful was in the Bible. So at the time, they kind of translated a lot of the term with a little of kind of a Christian word. And so when we think, you know, when somebody said, be mindful, you can be mindful. So in a way, how do we interpret being mindful? That we are kind of full of mind? Or often the interpretation is I, I must be aware of everything to the same degree. And this is, again, a little bit with the specific and general. Personally, I don't think it means to be mindful is to be aware to everything to the same degree. Because actually, it's not possible. Because it's kind of like a little intense to try to do this. It's a little intense. So generally, we try to be mindful. That's why Jaya was talking of anchoring. So we use one element, so it's a little in the foreground, and then the rest can be a little bit in the background. So there is kind of like, kind of you use it in different ways. You have a more focused, or you have a more open and different degree of that. But then there is another thing, and I alluded to it yesterday, about what I call self-consciousness. You could nearly say a self-conscious 
mindfulness, which personally is a little kind of uh, doesn't work. And so what happens is that we're told to be mindful. But it's not, it's a kind of a certain type of mindfulness we're talking about. Not, we're not being mindful just to stare at reality. The aim is not to become a radar. That's not the aim. The aim actually is to develop a caring and careful mindfulness. So the mindfulness is a certain, you nearly could say, affective quality. It's not a camera. It's not just kind of in order to reproduce exactly what you see. But it's actually, in, you're mindful in order, in a caring and careful way. So you relate to the experience in a caring and careful way with the mindfulness is to be a little clear about what's going on. So that's where the presence of mind, you know, we to be present to see, there is this term, to see and know things as they come to be. So the idea is to see and know things as they arise. So to be present to what is going on, but in a caring and careful way. And then the thing is that we have this, what I call a creative function. I would say we have thought, we have emotions, we have sensation, we relate to people, to the world. And all that is being creative function of being a human, this being this organism. And so one of the creative functioning we have is to discriminate. This is a clock, this is something which records, this is a bell, this is a jug of water. And so, you know, to see, it would be a bit hard to read, to, to, to check the time in the jug of water. I mean, possibly with quantum physics, you might be able to do it, but at this point in time, I don't think we could do that. And I think it would be hard to drink from the clock. So it's kind of good, I can say, oh, this is a clock, help with the time. This is a jug of water, helps if I am thirsty. So that's a basic discrimination which is very important for survival. But then that ability to discriminate, to differentiate, becomes over time, which will become wisdom in terms of the path, becomes judging kind of like a certain pattern, what I would call a mental pattern. And so discrimination, differentiation is just useful to go about our day in daily life, very important. But then when it becomes very automatic, often it becomes automatic in a slightly negative way. That's what often you call about being judgmental or blaming, blaming oneself, blaming others, judging ourselves, judging others. And this kind of, what is interesting is a feel of judging. And the feel of judging is like if you have like a little policeman or policewoman on the shoulder, saying, this is good, this is bad, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. 
And that actually makes you a little above the experience instead of being inside the experience. And the difficulty with that habit is that actually very easily it piggybacks. It kind of becomes associated with mindfulness. So then your caring, careful mindfulness becomes judgmental awareness, you could say. And then you use the mindfulness to kind of give yourself a hard time or others. I remember I used to live in a community in England, and I loved it that we used to accuse each other. You are not mindful. You are not compassionate. You know, you know. We use this wonderful idea to kind of accuse each other. You, know. you did not wash your cup. You're not mindful or this or that. So we can actually have this, develop this beautiful quality, but then the quality can shift if you get associated with this kind of negative self-judgment or other judgment. And so then what happens is that you become, if you continue to meditate, so first you meditate, and then you might be judging yourself for not meditating well enough or whatever it is that's going on. Then you meditate more, and then you kind of start to judge that you are judging. And then you have the judgment of the judgment of the judgment of the judgment. <laughs> and with judgment, with the judging tendency, we have to be a little careful. Because it's very prickly. It's very... And it's like if you had a, a friend, but it's a difficult friend. And because it's a difficult friend, you have to be a little careful. And you know how it is when you have a really easy friend. Ooh, you don't worry. But if you have a difficult friend, you still like them. But ooh, you have to be a little careful. There is somebody like that in my family, my brother-in-law. We have to be a little careful what we say. Otherwise, she, so it's kind of but We love him, but we're a little more careful. And it's the same here, to be a little kind of gentle, to see, hmm? kind of looking a little bit, being careful between what I call the aspiration. I mean, you came here to this retreat, I presume because it's meaningful to you. You hope to, to develop something, to understand something to develop more peace, more calm, more wisdom, more compassion. So of course you have that intention, you have that aspiration. And that's what gives you the energy to come and to practice. But if you see it with the expectation, I must be peaceful now like this, or I must not have any type of thought like this, like that right now, then you're actually fixing a little. You kind of say, you move from what I call expiration, which is open and give you energy, to expectation, which is a little kind of, it must be like this. And life being impermanent, things come, go, are different. So trying to see, can you, in a way, through the retreat, if, if you don't have any judgment, this is fantastic. If you do, can there be a little gentleness within it? A little kind of, how can I play with this? How can I bring a little 
lightness with that. So tomorrow morning I'll talk more about um, the meditation. But here, I just want to, to see, say that when we develop mindfulness, when we cultivate meditation, it seems to me that over time, what we develop is what I was called a creative mindfulness. This caring, careful, creative mindfulness, creative awareness. And you can cultivate it directly by cultivating mindfulness directly, or you can cultivate it indirectly. There are many different techniques, but I think a lot of the techniques help you to develop this creative awareness. And to me, what, I was in, what it was interesting early on when I started to meditate at the beginning is that I realized that the creative awareness had a very different quality to just being conscious of something. That it makes you aware of what is going on Again, with this, what I would call this affective, kind, caring, light, spacious quality. And the way I saw it was because I was um, so practicing in Korea as a nun. And I was sitting there and doing my 10 hours. And one day, I was sitting there, and that was not a type of meditation where you do mindfulness. You'd, it's a different type of meditation where you do questioning. And so I was doing that, and suddenly I became so aware of my thought. And I thought, oh, and I became aware of, it was really an experience what they were about. And I realized they were about me. Look at me, what about me, this is me, etc., etc. I thought, oh, you see, because up to that moment, I thought I was this incredible, compassionate person who thought of others more than me. And then I thought, uh-uh, doesn't look like this. But when I saw that, I did not feel bad. I did not feel I am the most terrible person in the world. I'll never manage. Da, da, da. I just thought, wow, this is funny. I thought I was one way, and actually, this is different. I thought, oh, that's what's going on. That's what I have to work with. And so I said, okay, let's do that. Let's work with what is going on now. And so I would characterize creative awareness with these two aspects of acceptance and transformation. To me, when we develop, when we develop this caring, careful mindfulness, creative awareness, there is these two quality of acceptance and transformation. And I think acceptance is that actually we creatively accept what we see to be the case. That's where the presence of mind is about. Oh, that's what's going on. And then actually, this presence of mind, this mindfulness, is not just about seeing what is wrong. 
I think this is very important. It's not just about all the terrible thought or emotion or whatever. It's about both. And to me, that's what I saw, that actually I could see, creatively see that, oh yeah, I have good qualities. Oh yeah, I also have difficult aspects. And so by accepting them, I was seeing them very clearly. And what was interesting with the, the quality, the beneficial quality, is that if you're more aware of them, then you can more activate them. For example, when I was in Korea, I used to translate. And then somebody asked me, oh, why don't you write a book of the translation of all the talks and somebody can help you? And I mean, if I had kind of thought, oh, I cannot write, I am not a writer, then nothing would have happened. But I thought, why not? I can translate, that person can help me with the English, let's do this. And from just thinking, why not? I can translate well enough. Let's try this. I became a writer. But if I said, oh, I can't do it, this is not possible, I have never done it. But because there was this acceptance, of, oh yeah, I could do this. And then from that, I have written many different books. And each time I find it such a creative thing, very enriching, very nurturing. So in a way, the caring, careful mindfulness helps us to see as much our potential, our beneficial quality, as what is difficult. Where do we have certain uh, painful, maybe, habits? And then what you realize, and this is what is important in terms also of the retreat, is to be aware of change, to be aware of impermanence. And this is one thing I really could guarantee, that's the only thing I can guarantee on the retreat, is that things change. That's the only thing. And I would presume that things will change throughout tomorrow and the other day, very likely. I would be really surprised <laughs> if you manage to, to have the same thought non-stop or the same feeling non-stop. Because if you say non-stop, you're meaning every second, every minute, every hour, every day. Personally, I think it's hard to sustain that. So what becomes interesting with the creative awareness is conditionality. And to look, I have certain automatic painful tendencies, but are they always manifesting? Generally not. Generally, you have certain conditions, you need a trigger within those conditions, and you need contributing factor. And if all these three things come together, then yes, you're going to react in an anxious, impatient, unkind, or whatever way. And so in a way, the creative awareness is not saying, I am terrible because I'm like this or like that. But it's more, oh, what are the conditions? Can I creatively engage with those conditions? Then one thing I wanted to look at also
Possibly something you might have noticed today, unless you are really sleepy, I hope you were not, is that when we sit in meditation, especially when we sit, when you walk maybe a little less, you seem to have thought. As I said before, personally I think it's a good idea because it shows that your brain is working and basically it's firing, doing its thing, and it's a good idea. And personally, I know, I know it would be nice if you, if you had a quiet mind. I do agree, it would be nice. But you see, I think what is interesting is to notice that actually, uh, recently they did some um, kind of study. At the moment, they're trying to understand in terms of neuroscience and brain research, the restful state of the brain. And actually the restful state of the brain is generally not restful. So that's what I little, they have a little problem with uh, meditators. They wanted to see uh, one of the preliminary thing was that they were trying people who had not really meditated and people who had meditated for a long time. And they wanted to check, you know, how were their restful state of the brain. So, for the people who had not really meditated, they had a really active restful state of the brain. The meditator had a wonderful non-active state, resting state. They really had a resting state. But what was more pro problematic was having them to have an active state of the resting brain. That was very difficult because they were kind of... I had this experience recently. I, w I was doing some research with some people and they, I was in the fMRI. They were telling me, I'd just be there. Don't do anything. Don't think. Then, well, if you say a meditator, don't think, you don't think. No, 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 let your thought go. <laughs> It was very funny. I don't know if I did the exercise properly. But to me, reading that article, I reflected and thought that actually, if you bring creative awareness to thinking, actually you start to see that there are two things going on. One thing is what I would call functioning. Just the fact that the, the brain functions and has different creating thinking thought. And then on top of that, like I would say planning, imagining, differentiating, etc. And on top of that, actually you have what I discovered early on, selfie, self-referencing. I am like this, they are like that, I shouldn't be like this, but what do they think of me? What do I think of them? and then you kind of make it generally very frothy. But in a way, all this selfing, I mean, I exist. I don't need to have to think I exist. I know a French philosopher said something else, but... <laughs> I mean, I exist. Do I have to think so much about existing? Unless I'm a philosopher, which is different. And then I think that's what happened. 
The meditation helps a lot of the selfing, self-referencing, and second-guessing, double-guessing, and all that to go. So that goes over time. It takes a little time. It's not overnight. We're a little habituated. Because I think we feel, if I think about myself, I exist. Personally, I think if you just ex exist, you will exist. I don't think we have to think so much about it. But then what's left? If you, the selfing goes, then it doesn't mean you are just with no thought. You have thought. Because you have the creative functioning of planning, ruminating, imagining different things. And then what you see is that this creative functioning can get habituated. And so when you sit in meditation, what is interesting to see is that you actually have different level of this habituating functioning. You have the light, so you sit in meditation, you think a little bit of that, a little bit of this. But there, nearly as soon as you see, you see the thought, as Jaya was saying, and at the same time, you're aware of the breath. So it's very light. So it's kind of just passing by. And, and if you really don't want to have thought, if you really don't want to have thought, even light one, I can give you the recipe. You go on a retreat in silence for a month, and you, you sit and walk in meditation all day long in the countryside. And I can guarantee you, at the end of the month, you have no thought, because nothing is going on. <laughs> but I mean, easy is the point. But you can do it still if you want. So you have light. Things are just, you know, thinking shopping list is that. Then you have habitual, and that is interesting. It's a little more sticky. Personally, I think if we do meditation over time, what is interesting is how the thought develops. Generally, we are in the middle of it, or at the end of it, or flowing with it. But over time, we can go back to when it starts. And it's fascinating when it starts, because they have thought at the beginning of different tastes. Daydreaming is very different from ruminating. Daydreaming is like, mm, it's like kind of, you know, chocolate cake or. <laughs> and so you kind of, you sitting there, the breath, the breath, if I was, if I had, if I become a famous writer, if I won the lottery, or if I have a million followers on Twitter, or whatever it is. And then it's wonderful. I mean, daydreaming, the meditation passed very quickly. <laughs> I used to do this a lot. <laughs> and what is interesting is how it starts. But ruminating is very different. You sit in meditation, the breath, the body, and then you remember something somebody said was nasty. Maybe, I don't know, two years ago? They said this. How could I say that? It's so painful. So you're okay now, but you get it, bring it here. Ooh, it's become painful. And then you start to plot revenge. Very nice activity, you know. you know. 
and I'll meet them, and they'll say that, and I'll say that, and I'll get them. You know? And then you try to find the best way. And in a way to see, to see how it works. Oops, I went over there to get that. Can I leave it there? Can I leave it there? The future, generally they don't say what you plan for them to say, so you can say something else. And the only thing we can do is creatively engage with now. So to me, this was very interesting to see over time all the different things where my, my mind would go once it left a little bit the selfing stuff. It was very interesting to see the kind of the different patterns and tendency and what would I think about and, you know, different things. And so personally, I would see it as an exploration because you see, you have different, you have the four foundation of mindfulness. So you have the mindfulness, what we did today, foundation, the mindfulness of the body, including the breath. Then you have the mindfulness of the feeling tone. Then you have the mindfulness of the mental state. Then you have the mindfulness of the mental object, which are many different. So you could nearly say there is nothing that you cannot be mindful of. I mean, this is a bit of the advantage with this technique, with this meditation, is that whatever you are mindful is okay. But then it's what kind of mindfulness? That is in a way what in, on the retreat we are really trying to work with, is to develop a caring and careful mindfulness, a creative awareness. And then it, it brings a different quality to the experience. But of course, in a way, personally, I think what we do on a retreat is that we develop the power of creative awareness. Because for many years, all of us, we have developed the power of the habits. And the habits can be developed for many different things. Because we have st to study a certain way in school, because it can be a survival mechanism in some way, like I was talking to somebody in, um, in prison uh, where they were doing meditation. And the, we were talking about daydreaming. And the person, the prisoner was saying, yes, a bit of daydreaming is good because it gives me a little kind of, you know, nice feeling tone, dreaming about good thing after I will be free. But if I think too much, daydreaming makes me frustrated with my situation. So actually, you have to kind of, you know, balance it a little bit, but not too much. And so, in a way, it's kind of like we have all these different uh, things we've developed over time as a mean of survival, as a mean of many different things. And then the thing for us in meditation is to see, oh, yeah, I'm a little habituated here. It's a little sticky. So by coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, with this caring and careful way, then I'm basically trying to bring it back to the creative functioning. 
And so what we have to see is that for many years we build the power of the habit. And in a way with the meditation, as Jaya said, we need to be patient. Because it's kind of like we develop the power of the creative awareness. And as we develop that power, then the power of the habit goes down. So we need to kind of, at the beginning is a little frustrating because it looks like the power of the habit is a little stronger. And then again and again we see glimpse. And then there was a question, I got a, a question, which was about when I am uh, sitting in meditation, actually I have a very nice, uh, I'm kind of thinking of my loved one and it's very pleasant, but possibly it could be distracting. What do you recommend? Well, I would say it depends. It depends how you think of your loved one. Does you, in a way, do you use the fact that you love someone and you bring them to mind as a way to go into daydreaming and thinking about retiring together or going on holiday or who knows? Or are you connecting to the feeling to a new experience when we are with them? Are you connecting to the feeling of love, which you could kind of connect to the loving kindness, connect to the people in this room? So to me, is can we be with the experience? Oh, a loved one appear, that it be my niece, my mother, my friend. Oh then that can evoke something. Can I stay with the evocation, the feeling of evocation? And what is love about? Love is about opening our heart to ourselves and to others. I think love is a wonderful quality. So can we keep, can we, can, when the loved one come out, can we stay with that feeling of love, of openness, of heartfulness? that then can be shared with others. Or, in a way, do we go more into what I call abstraction, fantasizing, daydreaming? And then I would say it's more kind of like occupying. You know, it's kind of a nice occupation as we sit, possibly not meditation, but <laughs> entertaining, I would say. You see, when I was in, um, in Korea, I was kind of doing meditation, and I was meditating, and suddenly I saw I was daydreaming about going to a hermitage, meditating really hard, awakening and saving everybody. <laughs> and then I thought, but this, I mean, feels very nice, but this is not meditation. This daydreaming about meditation. So I think it's a little the same here. Do we connect to the quality associated with the person, or do we go into kind of a, a fantasy about it? Another daydream I used to have was to become a kung fu mistress. In my youth, I used to love kung fu film. So I would, meditation, yeah, yeah. And then I would daydream about a kung fu mistress and saving the world again. <laughs> and this time I decided to go, you know, finally I thought, let's go and try this. 
So I went to try it and I lasted three hours. And after that one went. So I think it's kind of like, of course, I think daydreaming is a, is a very favorite activity. Daydreaming, ruminating are quite favorite activities. When we sit in meditation and just to see that, to see, oh, that's where I go. How does it feel at the beginning? To me, that's what is interesting. What is it? You know, I'm just with the breath, with the body, and I am somewhere else. What is it? How does it feel? So, you know, you become interesting in not why am I thinking this, but what's the manifestation of it? So to bring, to bring creative awareness to that. So that's what I wanted to say today. So we have a little time left, so if anybody has any questions or any comments, either about what you, we said today or about what you experienced today, this is quite open. In a way, yeah, because you see, I think uh, in terms of, I mean, we're going, talking within the, the framework of Buddhism, and the Buddha was very clear that what he, he was see, looking at conditions. And so basically, when we talk of um, samasati, which means appropriate wholesome mindfulness, and then he was saying, it's kind of like you're creating, like, you know, you go in a certain direction, and basically the Buddha saying, let's try to cultivate this. And so from his point of view, the practice, I mean, uh, when he says, what is liberation? He said liberation is freedom from greed, freedom from hatred, freedom from confusion or ignorance. So basically, he wanted us to develop the conditions that are more likely for us to develop wisdom, to develop compassion, to be harmless, etc. And so I would say partly that, that in a way you have this potential, and of course you have the potential for something which is painful or for something which is uh, joyful in a way. And the Buddha is saying, if you cultivate the creative awareness, if you cultivate samasati, then this is going to help you toward harmlessness, toward wisdom, toward compassion. So I would say, in a way, yeah, it is developing, cultivating the power of a positive habit, you could say. At one level, I think it is. And you can see it really clearly when he talk about the four great efforts, when they really talk about uh, cultivating 
in such a way that when a positive state arises, you help the positive state to continue, to sustain itself. Then he says, cultivate conditions so that before a state of peace, clarity, quietness arise, the condition will help it to more likely arise. So even before it's there, can you help the condition to make it more likely to arise? And so you really see that the Buddha is kind of really working on that, on conditionality, basically, what is it that helps us, what is it that does not help us, but always within the framework of wisdom and compassion, and of course, to a certain degree, freedom from hatred, freedom from greed, freedom from uh, confusion. Yes. Of course, you see, I think you have the, the basic building block. You start with his consciousness. And from a Buddhist framework, co uh, consciousness arises upon these five factors. Contact, feeling tone, intention, perception, and attention. So attention from a Buddhist framework, and I think also scientifically, that attention is an ability we have. So you have attention. What you talk about is the amount of attention we need to be able to throw the arrow successfully or do the wire and things of that nature. So here, we go because <laughs> we, especially with the wire, we want to be careful. So then we bring a lot of attention. So some of it is similar to what I'm talking about. But I would say it really becomes sama sati if it's caring and careful so that it has a little more of this affective quality. <coughs> so in a way, you could be doing this and you could be kind of like saying, don't be stupid, don't make an error. You know, if you do it, you're going to really mess up. You know, you could do, you know, you could have a little kind of stuff around it, or you could say, okay, keep calm, keep calm, it's okay. So already the quality would be a little different. But I think, yes, the, the attention is a first, is a basis. And upon that attention, there is some quality that comes with it, that are necessary to really make it samasati, beneficial, appropriate mindfulness. Yes. Can I just ask, I'm interested in this business of, um, say, in the beginning of the distraction, whether it's ruminating or daydreaming, because I don't think I've ever been able to do that. Well, my experience is that I've had an intention, say, to focus on the maybe even question, like Hawkeye, like a 
can't see that that intention, you know, that, that I could actually see the very beginning, you know, because I, because I don't want to do that. So it's only through a lapse of attention that it, it's kind of happened. And maybe it's been difficult for a while, but it's, it's quite a kind of amorphous kind of thing we're doing, you know, and anything can come up. It's been but just focusing on the why is a bit is a bit more specific, you know. I just, you know, that's just more. Uh, you see, I think um, it depends what it is. Because you see, if it's light stuff, it has. It has um, I think it, it really depends on so many different things to 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 be able to do it. Like if it's light stuff, there is not much difference between being aware of the breath and a little there and then you back very quickly. You know, like, if you notice, as soon as you see your distraction, you are aware of the breath. It was kind of something which was fairly light. And then because it's light, you're not going to see it very much. What you can recognize then is more the theme. You know, like sometimes I can recognize, I used to recognize luggage. You know, suddenly I would find myself making my luggage. <laughs> Because I travel a lot. So, oh, luggage. And once I saw luggage, then I would do it much less because I quickly saw it earlier. Oh, luggage. Or, you know, you might be more like kind of, you know, you might have something on your mind because you have to plan something or something. So, oh, that planning. So I think certain things you can see more as a type. You kind of, that I think you can see easily. Oh, that's planning. Oh, that's worrying a little about this. Oh, that's why. Then you have what I call more habitual. And I think it's a habitual, which you can actually, over time, depending on what it is, you kind of like track it. Like the daydreaming is relatively, but it takes time to kind of get to the beginning for the daydreaming. Generally, you can, I think, track it to this first word, if I had, if I was, so it could be different for everybody, what starts it. Or ruminating. Ruminating often is just this sudden memory which pops up. And then it's interesting to notice, does it pop up just like that? Or was I having an unpleasant feeling tone here? And then suddenly it pop up. And there was that association with it. That again, it depends. So I think I, it kind of depends. I think the, of course, the beginning, it's often hard to see. I mean, it took me a long time to detect the daydreaming. I mean, I did it for many, many years. You know, it really took a long time. Uh, and some other, I think it kind of depends a little bit of how they are, how they feel the way kind of you go off with it. But if it's light, it's kind of like, oops. It's kind of like it's gone before you see it, nearly. So then it's kind of a little tricky there. And I think it also depends the energy we have. If we're a little tired, a little vague, then it will be a little harder to spot. Yes. Notice that you've been caught up in something, so you didn't see 
that are you sort of are there? What happens with me is that I say, oh, quick breath. And, and then I don't really then try and untangle it. So are you saying that you would then try and sort of untangle maybe a little bit, backtrack and see what happened before you then, do you then try and, try and sort of think backwards into what, which way it went without obviously ending up there again? Uh, that's not really. I would not recommend that necessarily, uh, unless it's really obvious that you started there and now you're there. I know, I'm way over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, what's more interesting, I would say what's more interesting is, oh, to kind of see, kind of, uh, what is it? Like, more like, am I in the Bahamas? Am I... Kind of, uh, kind of doing a conversation with somebody? Am I counting the money in the bank? Am I, you know, kind of just, what is it? But kind of just to see, oh, I mean, to me, that's the way I kind of started to see, oh, luggage. Before that, I had repairing my clothes, repairing my clothes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was kind of, you can suddenly see different type of theme. Some themes are not very kind of like juicy, like luggage, repairing clothes, okay. They're kind of more like uh, occupying. And then some like if you're rehearsing conversation, then there is a little more kind of, mm, okay, rehearsing conversation. Uh, I have rehearsed this conversation for, fifth, for the fifth time, maybe I can stop now, you know, this kind of thing, or planning to see you plan the planning of the planning of the planning, then you must remember the planning of the planning of the planning. I would say again, planning five times, and then possibly you can leave it. So kind of just to see a little bit the type. Then the second thing which can be interesting is the languaging. I must, it has to be, always, never. So see, is it categorical, is it uh, a little softer. That's another thing to look at. Also, the tone. The tone. Can you soften the tone? Or can you soften it by coming back? So it's kind of that's where I would see more in the experience of it. Because you see, being the experience of the breath, being the experience of the thought. But I would not recommend most of the time to sit there and try to be aware of your thought, because try it. Be aware of your thought, and there is no thought. But you cannot, you cannot sustain it for very long. So that's what I would recommend. Okay, and then maybe we can uh, stop here, and then there is now we have a 30 minute or walking meditation, or kind of sitting, or whatever suits you. And then at nine o'clock, we'll have the final city.